Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. Spiders become very visible this time of year, and not just in Halloween-themed displays. Spider visibility can raise some concerns because a lot of people are afraid of spiders. But they are a very important part of our ecosystem and mostly harmless. Here to teach us about our eight-legged friends is entomologist Zach Shum. He's an insect diagnostician with the Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. Hello, Zach. Good morning. How are you? Good. It's wonderful to have you here. So we talked about ticks this past spring. Now we're going to talk about spiders. And I'm going to guess that ticks and spiders are probably the things that you hear about in the most negative way. Am I right about that? You're pretty close. Yeah. Ticks, spiders, anything with more than six legs and unfortunately even things with six legs. Uh, In general, we don't like a lot of things that creep and crawl, uh, except for maybe me. But yeah, ticks (laughs) and spiders, very common. (laughs) All right. And I mean, spiders do have a bad reputation. A lot of people are really startled by them, really afraid of them. But uh, let's talk about their role in the ecosystem. What, What do spiders do? Yeah, so spiders are beneficial for several reasons, uh, and really the the main one that we can discuss is that they're a critical part of food webs, and a lot of things eat spiders, and spiders eat a lot of things. So to put it simply, spiders are really critical to just consumption and being consumed in order to just transmit energy and consume energy in the animal kingdom. And what do they think about humans? Not that you know what's going on inside a spider, but... <laughs> but I wish I did. <laughs> right. They, they're not all that interested in us for the most part, are they? They really aren't. I mean, most of the time when people have run-ins or negative run-ins with spiders, and mostly I'm meaning accidental bites, it's mostly a self-defense thing. It's a threat thing. They really don't want to have anything to do with us. And a lot of spiders can even dry bite where they'll bite you but not use any venom. It takes a lot of energy to energy for a spider to create venom. So they don't want to use it for anything other than their food. Uh, can they? Sure. But does it happen often? Or is it really common for them to want to bite humans? No, not really. They don't want to have anything to do with us. They'd rather avoid us. Why are they so visible this time of year? I Yeah, that's a good question. And I always argue that there are always more spiders in our homes and in our living spaces than we notice, uh, that's, which is probably not what people listening in want to hear. Uh, But it's true. Uh, But the reason that we probably see more of them in the fall is because there's just more of them that are coming into our living spaces. It's getting cold outside. A lot of insects, arthropods, other, you know, small creatures want to go and find warmth. And humans have conveniently plopped our living spaces right in the middle of, you know, right in the middle of spider habitat. And they're going to want to find that warmth. And if they have a little crevice or crack or hole to get inside your home, they're going to do it. And they enjoy that because it's nice and toasty inside. In the late summer and fall, we're getting a little bit past that now, but we do see a lot of spider webs. People who spend a lot of time outside will see the the orb weaver webs. Those become very visible that time of year. Well, they can, yeah, especially once plant material, you know, leaves to nest and fall from trees. It, it exposes a lot of spider webs on trees and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, we, tend, we can see some more webbing as well. Which I tend to enjoy. A lot of people do. Yeah. A lot of people don't. <laughs> They can be quite beautiful. I mean, there's some species of spiders that their webs are just so intricate and beautiful if you actually sit there and take a look at them. 
if I always tell people, if you can ever have the opportunity to watch a spider build a web from scratch, it's absolutely unbelievable that they can do that. There are two spiders that you tend to get the most calls about. Tell me about them. Yeah, I would say the two that we get the most inquiries about are the brown recluse spider and the black widow spider. Uh, I So I, I lump those into generally calling them brown recluse and black widow, but in reality there are many species of widow spiders, and there's also many species of recluse spiders. They're, they're more broadly called brown spiders, uh, but the ones that... Uh, so brown recluse is like the the, the typical one that we hear about. Uh, and then black widow people all just kind of lump them all into one type of spider. But there's actually many species of widow spiders in North America and over 30 species of widow spiders in the world, which is very interesting. I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Tell me a little bit more about the brown recluse. Yeah. So the brown recluse is uh, one of two. So I would also, to to take a step back, widow spiders and brown spiders are sort of the most medically significant spiders that we have in North America, especially in the United States. And there aren't many other species that are medically significant or could be medically significant to us, uh, pending maybe an allergic reaction from a bite or something like that, which is very rare. Uh, brown recluse, there is one species of brown spider, the true brown recluse, that is native to parts of Iowa. So its range extends into the southern half, more or less, of Iowa. But they're very uncommon in the state of Iowa. Can they be found? 100% they can. But most of the time, when people suspect that they find brown recluse spider, it's actually some other similar-looking species. There are over 40,000 species of spiders worldwide, and there are then hundreds of them that could be found in the Midwest and probably over 100 in the state of Iowa easily as well. Uh, so there are many look-alike species. You can find brown recluse in some parts of the state. Brown recluse can also be shipped in in package materials or hitchhike in your car or in luggage and things like that from other areas. But they're quite uncommon here. Um, so I, I always just recommend to people, if you think you have something that you, if you think you found a brown recluse spider, always get a positive identification from a professional entomologist because there are so many things that look similar. What do they look like? So brown recluse spiders are, as the name would suggest, brown in color. Uh, but there are also hundreds of other brown-colored spiders out there. Uh, they tend to look very leggy. Their legs are, I think, I think, very long in relation to their body size. Their body is very thin. Uh, their legs are very long. And characteristically, the brown recluse, uh, the true brown recluse spider, has a violin shape on its carapace, or essentially just on its back, you could say. And most specimens have a pretty distinct violin shape on their carapace or on their back. Uh, other ones, it's not quite as distinct. Uh, other features, you would have to look under high magnification to get an accurate ID. But if you see something that's brown, it's very leggy and has that nice little violin shape on its back, there's a good chance that it is a brown recluse or one of the related species. Uh, but again, I always recommend getting it confirmed because there's some other really confusing species out there that look remarkably similar. All right. And brown recluse are... are largely overreported. They're less common than a lot of people think they are, but there is reason yeah. to be concerned if you encounter one, right? There there can be. And I would argue that brown recluse is a little bit more of a medical concern than black widows are, which we'll talk talk about, I'm sure. Uh, but it, it's so true. You mentioned that we think we have more run-ins with them than we actually do. Everyone seems to know somebody that's been bit by a brown recluse, and the vast majority of those are just not true, especially if we're talking for Iowa uh, and, I guess, the northern half of the United States. 
and you know, and even going back to my childhood, I remember one of my family members like swore he was bit by a brown recluse, and uh, he had a lot of skin symptoms, uh, and you know, it was never proven. The only way that you can prove that you were bit by a brown recluse spider is to collect the spider after it bites you and get it professionally identified. There are so many other potential medical issues that could present itself like a brown recluse bite. Um, so again, it's possible, but it's very unlikely if you're living in the state of Iowa that you're going to have a negative run-in with a brown recluse spider. But uh, as we were saying, they can cause some medical con- uh, medical concern. Uh, they Their bites can cause malaise, nausea, muscle aches and pain, headache, uh, but none of the very rarely are brown recluse spiders deadly. The only potential, or I guess the higher risk for really serious run-ins with brown recluse spider bites are with young children. Uh, but adults are usually fine. Uh, se- sometimes the wounds can take several weeks to heal, but most of the time you're going to be just fine, even if you just need a little bit of medical, you know, a, a medical checkup. All right, let's talk about the Black Widow, which is the best spider name there is, and I think makes them sound a little scarier than they actually are. Maybe a are. little bit. I think it makes them sound cool, but, you know. Yeah. So what what is the concern with Black Widow spiders? To be honest, I don't consider Black Widow much, and I'll use the term much uh, in, bold, in bold font. Uh, I don't think them as much of a threat. Uh, they are, and I even say this about the brown recluse spider, is that they're very generally docile spiders. I got my first ever live brown recluse spider, and you know, again, this is talking about how uncommon they are. I just got my first live specimen uh, two weeks ago, and I've been doing diagnostics for years. Uh, again, not that they're not out there, but we just don't see that many of them. And the first thing I did is I told all my lab members, I need to hold it. So I put it in my hand and it was fine. I know I don't re- recommend that anybody listening picks up a brown recluse spider. I have a lot more experience. Um, but going back to the Black Widow, they're also just very docile spiders most of the time. Uh, and shockingly, I, I think the last reported death in the United States from a Black Widow spider was all the way back in like the 80s or something like that. Uh, very few people actually have significant medical concerns after receiving a bite. It's like little, uh, just a tad over 1% of people that experience bites from Black Widow spiders actually have serious medical conditions or concerns with that. Uh, so, you know, if you take about how uncommon they are in Iowa, how they like to avoid people, and how just non-lethal their bite is, a very common misconception. You know, they, they could theoretically be lethal, but it's very, very uncommon. They're really not that big of a deal, in my opinion. I, every time I find them, I usually pick them up. Again, Iowa State does not recommend people picking up black widow spiders or any potentially medically significant spiders. Um, I have a lot of experience with them, and I'm comfortable doing that. But they're they're really not as big of a deal as we tend to think they are. How do you identify black widow spiders? That's actually a very good question. So I mentioned earlier that there are over 30 species of black widow spiders. There's about five in North America. The traditional way to identify a black widow spider is to look for the red hourglass shape on the underside of the abdomen. Uh, However, depending on what species you're looking at and depending on how old that specimen is, they can look a little bit different. Uh, One species that is, I would argue, is probably the most common in Iowa, the northern widow spider or the northern black widow. They they don't really have as beautiful of an hourglass as some of the other species. They also have some red coloration on the top of their body as well. Uh, So, you know, traditionally you look for that red hourglass shape, but, you know, if you're seeing a spider that is, I think their legs are also quite long. Uh, They're shiny black. Most species are very shiny and black in color. And their abdomen is often very inflated or a lot larger than the rest of the body. 
so that that can be a general way to identify them, but I also say that there are many lookalike species. There's a false widow spider that's very, very common throughout much of North America that looks almost exactly the same. And if you're not looking for that hourglass or red coloration, uh, you know, it, it can be very easy to misidentify them. But, you know, in general, but this, again, is why entomologists and diagnosticians like me exist so we can positively identify your spider because <laughs> it's very hard. Some species even for me. Entomologist Zach Shum, he is an insect diagnostician with the Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. For more gardening information and tips, please subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about plants or insects. You can give us a call, 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or you can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With me, entomologist Zach Shum, insect diagnostician with the Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic, and Cindy Haynes, Professor of Horticulture at Iowa State University. Hello, Cindy. Good morning, Charity. It is wonderful to have both of you here. And before we get to questions, um, Zach, I I do want to ask you, now, clearly, you have made it clear that you like to pick up spiders. Most people don't <laughs> like to pick up spiders. If you would like to humanely remove a spider from your home, do you have a best technique or advice for people? If you want to remove a spider from your house, I just recommend the cup method. You know, take a take a cup, you know, a see-through one is often a little bit better so you know where it's at in the cup. So put it over top of the spider, take a piece of paper or maybe a piece of cardboard and slowly slide it under the, just the um, opening of the cup and then just walk it outside and release it. You know, you're, you're usually fine doing that. If you're really scared, you can kind of like fling the spider out. We just recommend doing it gently. We, we should like our spider friends. Uh, but yeah, just the cup method is easiest. If it's me, I'm using my hand usually, but sometimes they're too quick. So I have to get a cup myself. They can, or, or they if can it's me, fast. if it's me, you're calling Zach to come over. Or that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and I mean, Zach, a lot of people choose the squish method because they are freaked mm-hmm. out about spiders. Uh, you want to try to make the case that they should use the cup method instead? Yeah, I I mean, so I think a lot of our reactions to spiders, and I say this from experience because a lot of people that I spend time with like spiders a lot less than I do. Uh, We, a lot of times the the treatment to the bottom of the shoe, as I call it, is more of a gut reaction type thing. It's like, oh, it's creepy. It can bite. I got to kill it or get rid of it somehow really quick. And I always just argue that if you just like take some time to take a deep breath, the spider's probably sitting still. If not, it's trying to look for a place to hide and stay still. They're trying to run away from us. They don't want anything to do with us. And I think spiders are much more interesting than we give them credit for. You put them under high magnification, they're beautiful. They're, they're really beautiful organisms. And so I just recommend people just take a deep breath, you know, observe the situation, uh, and just respond 
calmly without gut reacting, treating it to your shoe. Uh, you know, we don't expect, we don't mm. expect every spider to be saved or I don't expect that, but it's okay to let things go outside. It really is. I promise. <laughs> And I, I live in a very old farmhouse, so I live with spiders. That is how it works. Yeah. And I have a son who has a large collection of house plants, and he has mm-hmm. been catching spiders and releasing them on his house plants because he oh. wants them to keep down any of those little insect pests that might be bothering his house mm-hmm. plants. Zach, what do you think yeah. about that approach? So I, I've never rec- recommended releasing spiders in the house uh, for keeping pests off your plants, I might recommend it just for fun uh, for myself. (laughs) But I mean, I don't think it's going to make any huge difference if you have like a massive pest issue on the plants in your home. But do they eat pests of plants and indoor plants? Sure, of course they do. Uh, Most of the time, unless there's actively food on the plant for them, they're probably just going to run and hide somewhere else or do something different. Um, But I mean, I have no problem with having spiders on houseplants by any means. So that's what I do if I ever find some indoors and if it's too cold outside or something, I will go put it on my house plant just because it's a nice place for them to hide sometimes. So. All right. <laughs> it sounds like you and my son would get along <laughs> everyone, really well. <laughs> everyone listening right now is probably like, what is with this guy? <laughs> I think, I think normal, maybe they already know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> All right. We would love to hear from you with your questions. 866-780-9100. 866 We've got a couple of lines open for you right now. You can also email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Susan in Charles City has a question for you, Cindy. She says, I have a lovely new hardy hibiscus this year, inspired by the beauties I saw at the Iowa State Fair. It bloomed well this summer. How should I prepare it for winter so that it has a good chance of survival? Really, you don't have to do much. Um, Maybe water it a couple of times this fall or into winter because it's been so dry and it does like it a little on the wet side. And then if you're really concerned and you planted it later in the season, I might mulch it heavily um, after a really hard frost just so that I know where it was and it wouldn't lift. And then the last thing I would do with a hardy hibiscus is mark it. Mark where it is because they tend to be very late in emerging in the spring. They may not do anything until it gets kind of warm. So that may be June before you see signs or evidence of it coming up. So make sure you know where it is and you're just being patient with it. All right. And speaking of watering, Cindy, and we've had a little bit yeah. of rain in the last week or just, so where I mm-hmm. am, and but just a little bit. So I know. should like we be teaser. watering pretty a lot of things right now? I think anything that's newly planted, um, you probably do want to make sure it sets it up well for um, the fall and the winter. So water it well. Um, yes. Yeah, so continue watering, especially those newly planted trees and shrubs. Um, because we want them to establish a fairly good root system. Um, And in most of the state, it has been kind of hit or miss whether you've gotten rain. If you had rain in the last week, then maybe you can skip this week's worth of watering. Um, But we need to kind of continue this really until the ground freezes for any kind of newly planted trees and shrubs. All right. So even if there's a frost, that doesn't mean the ground is frozen. It doesn't mean the ground is frozen. I usually try and make sure there's one or two really good waterings in the fall, um, even after a kind of a killing frost, just so I know that that root system is still growing because the ground is still warm um, and it's got what it needs, especially in a, in a dry fall. 
All right, we're going to go to the phones. There are still a couple of lines open for you. 866-780-9100. 866-780-9100. Or email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Dan is on the line in Ames. Hi, Dan. Hi. Hi, what's your question? I had a, I had a question about the husband's tale that Osage Orange might detour spiders. And if so, what are the 40,000 species they might detour? <laughs> okay, oh, and I, I love your equal apple. opportunity with tails there, Dan. Um, Zach, what do, you, what do you think? Osage Orange in the basement? This, this I've, I've never heard of that. I was taking a brief pause there because I moved from a state recently that didn't really have a lot of Osage Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm looking over at Cindy, and we both kind of came to the same conclusion that we've never heard of that ever uh, you know, spiders don't really go around sniffing like humans do. Uh, and I, I don't really think there's really any spider deterrence. I mean, other, other than like putting up traps, uh, to actually collect them, but actually to deter spiders, I don't know of any ones that are really like scientifically studied and acceptable and usable. Um, so it's a great question, Dan. Uh, we get questions about deterrence very frequently, uh, but I, I've never heard of Osage Orange being used for that. Yeah. Yeah. The- they they sometimes sell them even in the grocery stores as a kind of spider deterrent. Oh. But I think the only way they work as a spider deterrent is if you hit them. If you squish them. <laughs> yeah, with, right. the, with the Osage orange. Clearly yes. I'm going into the wrong section of the store because I've never <laughs> seen that before. <laughs> Osage, I'm in the spider buying section. Yeah. Osage oranges have quite the reputation. There are lots of mm-hmm. things that people say that they do. They, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Dan, thank you so much for the call. 866-780-9100. You can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Your insect questions or your plant questions. Oakley's on the line in Cedar Rapids. Hi, Oakley. Hi, how are you guys? Good. What's your question? So, Zach, my question was, uh, I've tried to foster an interest in spiders with my kids so that they are not, like, afraid of them or anything, but a lot of my, you know, uh, nieces, nephews, and everything like that are freaked out by them, scared of them, they want to kill them, push them, do whatever. How do I maintain that uh, curiosity and interest in the spiders with my daughters? Um, Yeah. Like, even though she might be around other people that are not as accepting, curious, or interested in them. Oakley, thanks so much for the call. I'm going to reiterate that just because it was a little bit hard to hear. Oakley's asking how to foster his daughter's interest and curiosity in spiders in spite of the fact that there are other children around her who are afraid of them and want to kill them. Zach? Oakley, that that is an awesome question. I think this is probably my favorite question I've ever been asked. <laughs> nice. Uh so I, I'm going to tell a very brief story that I used to be terrified of spiders because I was taught to be by my family. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing against them by any means, but, you know, I was always told that, oh, spiders can bite and like, oh, they're dangerous and they're creepy and we don't like walking through their webs. And I remember the first black widow spider I found I killed because I thought that they were deadly because that's what I was always taught. And I was taught to be afraid of them. And what I would recommend to anybody that anybody that you're trying to just nurture this like love and appreciation for spiders is... Have those individuals that you're trying to foster that interest in, have them start teaching others. Uh, And, I mean, obviously we can just keep exposing ourselves and our family members and kids and whoever to more spiders. You find them outside, you you crouch down, you observe it, or you look, get closer to the tree to observe it. 
mean, all those things are always going to help, you know, retain that interest and retain that, I guess, lack of fear. But the second that you start taking that and making it a passion for yourself or making it a passion for your kid, I mean, you allow your kid to share that passion. So not sharing for the sole purpose of like, this is why I'm going to teach you not to be afraid of spiders, but just sharing the interest with others. I think that does a lot of good. I mean, the way that I've gotten people over their fears of spiders is I tell people how much I love them. I show them spiders in my hand and I'm like, look, it's not going to hurt me. Oh, you found the spider in your house. Let me just pick it up with my bare hand and remove it. Make it very casual. Make it like it doesn't even matter that we found a spider in your house. And over time, I mean, it takes time. I'm not going to lie. Like, I still can't get my my mom to hold a spider. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think it'll ever happen. But um, at some point she became okay with me having like 10 tarantulas in my bedroom growing up. Oh. Uh, the first one she was not happy about. But over time of me just sharing my passion and why I love them and why I think they're interesting, eventually you make progress. So uh, short answer is I would just recommend you have anybody you're trying to foster the interest in, share that interest with other people. I think that's the best we can do. Great question. Oakley, I'm going to give you a little personal insight from my life as well, which was being a girl who was not afraid of spiders mm -hmm. was considered to be kind of cool and kind of tough. So mm -hmm. I I liked that about myself. And then my friends always asked me for help if there was there was an incident. So I I don't know. She yeah. may not be as influenced by the others as you might think. Let's uh, go to the next call. Ardell is on the line in Cedar Falls. Hi, Ardell. Yes, I have a problem. I have a viburnum bailey. On the, and it's Oh, at least 10 years old, about 10 foot tall, but it has some kind of disease that I guess they get. All right. Can I just saw it off and will it maybe come back up okay or should I get rid of it? Well, is the disease or is are you noticing signs on the leaves or is there something on the stems? Oh, they're dying. There are certain branches that are dead. I've pruned okay. them out. Uh, and some of them, and it's never really bloomed like it's supposed to bloom so beautifully in the spring. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and in the fall, yeah. the leaves, there are only certain branches that are getting beautiful in the fall. Well, so this one I might say that, yes, do some pruning on it. Obviously remove the dead. Maybe do some severe pruning on it and tell it, okay, you've got one more year to kind of perform yeah, um, and come that, back yeah. and that's exactly what well. I thought. <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing is some var varieties okay, of viburnum, you. it might be a, a canker or something else, so it may not come back really well. So you might want to investigate what's going on next spring if it's still having this problem next spring or summer because if there is a, a, a canker or a wilt, um, maybe the plant and insect diagnostic clinic can help you identify that so that you don't plant another viburnum in that spot. We would love no, to help I with definitely that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Thank you. Ardell, thank you so much for your call. 866-780-9100 is the number. 866-780-9100. You can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. We've got another spider question for you, Zach. Hi, Philip. All right. Hi. Um, I bought a home three years ago, I live in North Liberty, Iowa, and it has a spider infection, infestation, I'm sorry. I went through a year of orchid, and they decreased the number of spiders, but they certainly didn't get rid of them. 
I was mm-hmm. told they're in the walls. I have spider, the same spider traps that Orkin use. I have them all around my house. I have to warn guests. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the house but me and spiders. That, don't don't be scared. <laughs> I know you can see all these traps. Because, you know, a spider trap <laughs> is the same use for a rodent. And uh, I, I, it's been three years. And even this morning as I was getting ready for work, I had to kill a spider. What yeah. can I do if they're in the walls? So a, a couple of, it's a good question and it's a very common one that we get. Um, you know, it, it's easier for me to sit up here and say like, oh, don't worry about it. But I know that that's not realistic. Uh, we, so in some situations, spiders are very abundant in homes and people have, you want to do things about it. That's totally, that's awesome. Um, you know, we, we want you to make that decision. Now, if you have a lot of spiders and you're inundated year after year with a lot of them, usually, uh, and this is just based off of me not knowing more about the situation, Usually it's because they still have some access to the home in some shape or form. It's a little bit less common for spiders to reproduce and survive inside homes and like behind walls, as you mentioned. Things like that are possible, especially if, you know, in basements, cobweb spiders can can reproduce and live down there. Uh, but a lot of times when we hear stories about people trying to manage spiders and having pest control companies and operators come out and spray Usually what's happening is the spray is only temporary, so it's going to kill spiders that are actively present and spiders that come into contact with that chemical or that spray. But as soon as that chemical wears off, it's just a free-for-all again, and spiders can just come in and survive at, at their own will, so long as there's food available to them. So chemicals are only temporary, and if spiders still have access to the home or they have ways to get inside somehow, it should be expected that more spiders are going to find their way in. So one of the first things that I recommend to people when they're trying to manage spiders in their house is to seal off the house as best as you possibly can. And spiders are small. They can squeeze through some pretty tiny cracks and crevices. So if you have, you know, old windows or if you have a door threshold that's kind of starting to break down or there's any sort of, basically anywhere where there's a really big air draft, it's a good opportunity for insects and spiders to make their way inside. So without knowing more about your situation, Philip, I would I would suspect that spiders are just continuing to get access to your home. And I would I would think less that they are reproducing inside your home. Uh, and uh, so I, I would maybe if, if and you're always welcome to email the plant and insect diagnostic clinic with this issue. Send us some pictures. Uh, we can maybe help you out a little bit more specifically. But I would make the assumption that they're probably getting in still somehow. Uh, so I, I would recommend trying to focus a little bit on that if you've done chemical intervention and it hasn't been effective yet. And chemical intervention, again, is like temporary. It's not a solution. So, yeah, good luck with that, Philip. Philip, thanks so much for the call. Best of luck to you. We're going to take a short break, and then we will be back to answer more of your questions. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. We've got entomologist Zach Shum and Cindy Haynes, horticulturist, here with us today from Iowa State University. This is Talk of Iowa. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today is Horticulture Day, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about plants or insects today. Give us a call, 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With me today, Cindy Haynes, professor of horticulture at Iowa State University, and Zach Shum. He is an insect diagnostician with the Iowa Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. We have been talking a lot about arachnids today. I know they're not insects, but I'm gonna I'm gonna lump them all together for, for the purposes of your calls today. Call call if you've got questions about creepy crawlies. 866-780-9100 or talk of Iowa at iowapublicradio.org. Let's go to the phones. Don is on the line in Solon. Hi, Don. Don, are you there? Yeah, hi there. I just have a question about um, uh, my tree roots and my leech lines with my septic system. I have mm-hmm. white swamp oak, and my husband planted about uh, 13 years ago, and another oak. And I just didn't know if there's a distance if I should worry about, you know, if I should cut them down now before they get too big for the root system for my leech lines. How far are they uh, from the leech lines now? Oh, hang on. I'm sorry. Don, how Uh-oh. far are they from the leech lines? I'm not, I'm not too sure if they're maybe um, oh, 10 feet um, right now. Right. Right. So so tree roots, you know, especially on an oak, they will extend beyond the drip line um, of the tree. So um, this tree is going to get a little bigger. And yes, it can have some tree roots that will kind of go into that area. It takes a long time for tree roots to really disrupt some of these different uh, places like um, sidewalks and and septic lines. But I'm not going to say that they're not going to do it because they probably are because that's a good place to get water and nutrients um, as as part of this process. I'm not sure I would tell you to take them down, uh, but I would tell you that maybe if in the future you think about planting another tree, you may be planted a little bit farther away. So it's a little less disruptive. And if you start to notice that it's disrupting uh, the septic or sewer lines, then maybe that's the time to think about removing that tree. And that way you've, you've nursed something else along a little while. Dawn, thanks so much for the call. 866-780-9100 is the number. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Brian's on the line next in Des Moines. Hi, Brian. Brian, are Hello. you there? Can Hi. You yeah, what's your question? Yeah, yes. Um, I have a, a nice stand of um, milkweed in front of my house, and they're like six to seven foot tall. And I know they're, the pods are ready to break open and get some more mm-hmm. seed. Is there any way or any challenge in, in relocating the existing um, milkweed so they survive? They're kind of in a bad spot, and I'd like to put them somewhere else in the yard. Yeah, one of the best things to do there is just to collect those pods um, that are developing um, now and then make a seed bed kind of where you want it to be next year and then kind of start fresh uh, with these seedlings that will kind of come up next year in that particular area. And let Mother Nature take care of it. Um, Sometimes these are a little harder to germinate inside, but if you sow those kind of seeds in a, a little seed bed, kind of lightly cover them, maybe water them a little bit, and then put something on top of them so you know where you planted them. 
um, you should notice some of them start to come up in, in the spring, late spring or summer. Um, and then you can remove the one that you have because I wouldn't try and transplant or move that now. This is really a little bit too late in the season. Um, and then you have some fresh ones where you want. All right, Brian, thanks so much for the call. 866-780-9100 is the number. You can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Back to some insect questions. Ross is on the line in Waukee. Hi, Ross. Uh, no, it's Tony. Oh, and, uh, okay. Yes, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I have a mystery question. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Last summer, uh, for the in, about insects, and uh, okay. um, it was last summer, I was out on the patio with my sister, and she got what seemed to be a bee sting, um, but we didn't see or hear the bee. It just felt like a bee sting to her, and um, and then she got a little welt, about three-eighths of an inch uh, thick, and we never did figure out what that was all about, uh, and then about two weeks ago, it happened to me, too, and, okay. um, you know, this bee sting, no nothing, welt complete mystery. Can you give me some direction? Yeah, it, it's a good question, Tony, and I, I appreciate the, the question. And I, I don't know if you were listening a little bit earlier when I was talking about uh, the brown recluse spider bites and how the only way to make a positive identification that you were bit by a brown recluse is to actually collect the insect. Uh, and it, this, the same holds true for any sort of insect bite or sting uh, with maybe a couple of really weird exceptions like honeybees that actually leave their stinger behind. Uh, they're the only bee in Iowa, the area that, is, that does that. Uh, we would probably have to see the insect or get a picture of it to suspect what it, what, what it is or to identify what it is. And part of that is because there are a lot of insects that can sting and there are a lot of insects that can bite. And also because everybody can react to stings and bites a little bit differently. I mean, there's some individuals that can actually have like contact dermatitis where like, you know, an insect will touch them or crawl on them and their skin can react to it. Um, So a a stereotypical or I guess a really good example of this is like even bed bugs. Some people don't react at all to bed bug bites. So you can have people that share the same bed. Uh, One person reacts to bed bug bites. The other person doesn't at all. So there's so many factors at play here that I would not be able to identify that or suspect what it was without actually seeing it, unfortunately. And I know that's kind of a shame because you want to know what's going on or what you got stung by potentially or bit by or, you know, what have you. But there really isn't a way to do it unless we actually see it. Tony, thanks so much for the call. Next, let's go to Beth in Ames. Hi, Beth. Yes. Hi. Hi. Go Am ahead. I on the yeah. radio? Go ahead and ask oh. your question. Okay. Okay, this question is about centipedes versus spiders. Okay. And Great. here's my problem. Here's my problem. I have no problem with spiders in my house. I'm okay with mm-hmm. them. My cats sometimes find them fascinating. <laughs> but centipedes, I just, I mean, I'm talking to you on, on the phone now, and I'm just getting goosebumps thinking about them. So I have a finished basement. And if I spot a centipede upstairs in my kitchen, I'll go down and I will set off a fogger in my basement. But I know it's killing the spiders too. So my question is this. If I leave everything alone, will the spiders beat the centipedes or is it vice versa? It's a good question. And uh, so, you know, centipedes and spiders are all predatory. So in general, so long as that spider or centipede is big enough to sort of 
uh, take on the other other critter in a battle and win, uh, yes, it, it could indeed eat them and, and vice versa. So it's, you know, there's not like a, a set rule of, oh, the centipedes are always going to eat the spiders or the spiders are always going to eat the centipedes. Uh, if you're speaking to those weird house centipedes that have those really incredibly long spindly legs, they are a little bit weird. The Cindy's over there looking <laughs> like, crazy. I don't like those I'm either. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I... The only thing good about them is that they're easy to kill because you just barely hit them and they splinter. But, I gosh, they are so awful. They're awful. Yeah, I um, I, I mean, to, to be honest, like instead of fogging, I would also just recommend hand removal. Um, I, And they're kind of like spiders, too. If you collect them and put them outside, there's a chance they could always come back in. Um, so, I mean, fogging is not something that I've ever recommended for either spiders or centipedes inside the house. Uh, you know, you can use it, but yeah, like you mentioned, if you do, you're going to probably kill everything or at least most things down there. So, you know, I think your best options are probably just to like hand remove them. You know, if, if, you know, I don't tell people what to do about treating things at the bottom of their shoe. Uh, you're, you're welcome to do that or collect it in a cup, smush it, let it go outside. It's kind of up to you, but yeah, fogging is going to kill everything or at least most things. And not one of them is set to win the battle every time. So yeah, good question. Thanks, Beth. Yeah, Beth, thanks so much for the call. Next, let's go to Syria in Des Moines. And Syria has the same question as Mary, who called us earlier. So, Syria, you're not the only one wondering about this. What's your question? Oh, my question, for decades now, I've been saving spiders with the cup and the index card method and setting them outside. But what do I do in the winter? Because it breaks my heart to set them out in an Iowa winter. So I'm putting them in the back corner of the basement. And, uh, yeah. Does Zach have any suggestions? Yeah, great question, Syria. I, I think about this too all the time because I I recommend the cup method or the catch and release method outside. But yeah, it's it's really cold outside, and if you in the winter, and if you let them go, they're probably just going to die. Personally, for me, I just leave them there. And I recall uh, some years back, just for a fun story time to you know gross everybody out for Halloween. I woke up in the middle of the <coughs> night, and um, th- my house didn't have AC. I left the patio door open. Uh, just to get some airflow. And I woke up in the middle of the night to a wolf spider crawling on my face, or what I'm assuming is a wolf spider due to its very large size. And I simply, I didn't want to let it go outside because it was freezing. And I literally just picked it off my face. I leaned over, put it on the floor, and I went back to bed. Uh, and I just let them go in my house. And, I, you know, like I said, most of the time they're hiding, and there's always more spiders inside your house than you think they are, than you think there are. Uh, they're always already present, so it's okay just to like do what you did and release them in the corner of the basement. They're going to be fine unless something else weird happens to them. Uh, so yeah, if you if you're really dead set on saving them, you can just keep them indoors. And unless it's something medically significant or you're known to react to spider bites, uh, it's it's going to be okay. Okay. You may have Yikes. lost a few people there, Zach. <laughs> everyone's everyone's logging off. That's my fault. I could hear the clicks all over Iowa. Uh, all right. Uh, let's it, go. it took me years to get to that point. <laughs> all right. Let's go to uh, Jim on the line in Orient. Hi, Jim. Yes, good morning. My question is uh, seeding lawn seed in the late mm-hmm. fall. Is there a stop date where you would not do that due to frost killing right. killing the seeding before it hardens off right usually we say we want to we want to seed our lawn sometime in kind of mid to late august to mid to late september usually october 1st is our kind of drop dead 
state to say, okay, now maybe we shouldn't be seeding because the 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 grass that emerges, the seedlings don't have enough time to grow big enough to have a big enough root system to acclimate and overwinter well. Now's a really good time to sod, though, if you still need uh, some grass and you have some time to kind of get it established. Uh, but seeding, usually we say by the beginning of October, it's time to stop doing that. Uh, maybe wait until, if you need to do it, maybe wait until spring. Thank you. Yep, thanks a lot for mm-hmm. the call, Jim. Next up, let's go to Linda in Carroll. Hello, Linda. Yes. What's your I question? I have a question about, my question is about Norfolk Pine houseplant. Mm-hmm. Now, I have browning on some of the branches. <clears throat> and is there an insect that, is particularly fond of Norfolk pine. <clears throat> that, that's a good question, Linda. Um, I, I, I'm not, am, am, I mean, so there are some insects that could be found on Nor- Norfolk pine, uh, but I'm, I'm not immediately of one, immediately aware of species that are specifically drawn to Norfolk pine. You know, if you do have any issues with that pine, if you're seeing some browning needles or if you see any insects on it, that would be a perfect opportunity to contact us at the Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. You can just do a really quick Google search for that. Uh, you know, Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic, Iowa State. It has a lot of contact information there for us uh, where you can, like, send us pictures and, if we need to, get a sample and to see if we can s- identify whatever insect you're seeing. And I, I think Cindy wants to chime in. Yeah, Nor- Norfolk pine do has, it has this tendency to kind of brown mm-hmm. some needles and lose some lower limbs. Um, it it really and it's usually not insect related. Yeah. It's usually environmental. They're very um, needy kind of house plants. They need that kind of consistent moisture, consistent light. And so sometimes we see this in in the fall when the light kind of tapers off. Um, so just giving it as much consistent care as possible um, is is probably the best thing to do. Yeah. It may or may not have an insect. It's just kind of it's natural tendency to lose a few limbs on occasion. That's my experience with it. I've had yeah. a couple of those actually. And yeah, in the fall, they just seem to get a little bit more sad and then in spring they're doing and then, okay. Yeah. And then they perk back yeah. up. So yeah. it'll, it'll drop a limb or two. And, and that's just kind of telling you that, okay, it's, there's some seasonal changes there, or maybe there's, um, it went through a dry spell or it's staying a little too wet. Um, maybe you should check some of those kind of soil conditions as well. Linda, thanks so much for the call. And uh, John in Ames has a lot of milkweed experience and some milkweed advice for us. Hi, John. Hello. How are you? Good. What would you like to talk about? Well, we had a question about milkweed in a place where they didn't want it and uh, Mm -hmm. a, a way to move it to some other place. So the suggestion had been to to plant some seeds, but an easier way to do it is just to dig up the ones you've got, if you can do that. And uh, there are rhizomes with these plants, and you can take just a a piece of the rhizome, maybe as big as a hand, and uh, and plant that. You could do that now, or you could do that in the spring. All right. Good idea. Yeah. Thanks for the advice, John. And we'll squeeze in one more call here. Jack is on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Jack. Hello. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I have a question 
about my clematis vine. Uh, we've had it mm-hmm. planted for a few seasons, but this is the first year we've had a trellis so it t- for it to actually grow on. Uh, so it did well this year and flowered. And I was wondering if uh, we should cut it back or if it'll flower again next year on the same growth. Um, some clematis will flower on kind of old season growth. I'm going to tell you to wait to cut it back until March or April just to see how much actually overwinters and comes back so that you're just cutting it back to where it's starting to grow again and removing kind of the dead section. Um, that gives it the chance to kind of have some advanced growth or some some less or more wood so it has more vine uh, time and maybe will bloom a little faster for you. So you get the, the plant decides what it gets to rem- have removed. Um, and you can do that and clean up in, in about March. Jack, thanks so much for the call. And we are out of time. Cindy Haynes, thank you. Thanks for having me. Cindy Haynes, professor of horticulture at Iowa State University. Zach Shum, thank you. Thank you, Charity. Entomologist Zach Shum and spider lover. He is also an insect diagnostician with the Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. We will be back. Well, we won't be back with Horticulture Day next Friday because all next week on Talk of Iowa, we're exploring womanhood. And then we'll have Hort Day the week after that. This is Talk of Iowa.